Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to stories of discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of just fewer than 1,000 churches throughout Kansas and Nebraska. I'm also a certified lay minister in the United Methodist Church, so what you hear on this show truly comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 25 years experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teenagers to 90-somethings, and I served as a journalist for 20 years prior to entering ministry. So I'm excited to share with you stories of disciples in action and to explore with you what the Bible has to teach us in the 21st century. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes feature interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. Still others include short reflections on scripture. Thank you for joining me. to this short series focused on the future of the United Methodist Church. In the first episode in this series, we talked with Reverend Adam Hamilton of United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, the largest church in our denomination, about the current state of the church. If you haven't been watching closely, Adam did a great job of catching you up by explaining where things stand now, with the launch of the Global Methodist Church as a traditionalist denomination and the pathway now for the United Methodist Church. In this episode, we're going to look back I think just as important as it is for listeners to understand where things stand now, we need to understand how we got to this point. While many people think the debate on human sexuality is a more recent phenomenon, the reality is the denomination has been debating the topic since 1972. That's 50 years. And it's just four years after the Methodist Church merged with the Evangelical United Brethren to form the United Methodist Church. In this episode, you're going to hear from two members of the Great Plains Conference's delegation to the General Conference. That's a congress of sorts that makes decisions with elected delegates from annual conferences. I'm joined in these discussions, recorded earlier over the past couple of weeks, by Reverend David Livingston and Randall Hodgkinson. David is lead pastor at Old Mission United Methodist Church in Fairway, Kansas, in the heart of the Kansas City metro area. He was a lay delegate to General Conference in 1996, He was ordained an elder in the church in 2000. He was a reserve delegate in 2008, and he was a delegate in both the 2016 and the postponed 2020 general conferences. Randall is one of our associate lay leaders in the Great Plains Conference. He was a reserve delegate to general conference in 2012 and 2016, and he was elected as a lay delegate to the postponed 2020 general conference. Randall is an attorney and teaches law at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. I had the privilege of attending a historical context presentation that they provided to the network of churches working together in the Lawrence, Kansas area, and I wanted to replicate that presentation as best we could for the podcast. Each of them will take you through part of the history, and I'll do my best to introduce them so you can keep track of who's who. I hope that you'll find what they have to say interesting and that the history of how we got to this point as a denomination helps you to better understand our current circumstances and helps you to find optimism in the future of our ministry together. We'll start with Randall explaining the origins of the dispute over ordination and marriage of LGBTQIA persons. Randall, I've really grown to appreciate the way that you study the details. I'm sure that's the attorney in you, but let's get back to the very beginning. How did we get to this point in this life, in the life of the United Methodist Church? How did we get here? 
So it's really a study of our United Methodist history in some ways. Uh, we can look back at the creation of the United Methodist Church in 1968 when we came together with the EUB Church. You know, we've celebrated our 50th anniversary here a few years ago. And uh, in that first uniting conference in 1968, uh, it was recognized we're going to have to decide, you know, what do we stand for as a church? And so in our, uh, our very uh, traditional Methodist way, we set up a commission. And so there was a commission that was to study for the next four years and bring a report back to our general conference in 1972 to say, what are some of the things that we should stand for? And that commission brought back a full report and it largely um, became what we know today as the social principles in our book of discipline. And so our social principles, which are the sort of positions that our church takes, uh, and they cover a range of, of issues, uh, many controversial issues today, things on um, gun rights and uh, the death penalty and you name it. Really, all these things are in there. There's, there's actually quite a few of them. Uh, you'll find them toward the front of the Book of Discipline. And really, they are a snapshot of American society. Uh, we have to remember a couple of things. The, the Methodist Church, the, the beginnings, the Methodist Episcopal Church was founded at the same time that the U.S. Constitution was being designed. So we look an awful lot like the U.S. government when you look at our polity. So sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to make sure people understood that. Yeah. And I think you're also right to think about it being a sort of a snapshot of when these social principles were being created and, and discussed. It's 1968 to 1972. And we can think about what our country was like then in the civil rights movement and uh, a lot of upheaval. I mean, we, we certainly feel like Today, there's a lot of divisiveness, but um, we can look back in our national history and know that's, that's not new. We go in cycles. Uh, so uh, this commission uh, brought forward uh, recommended social principles on all these different topics. Uh, and one of them had to do with human sexuality. And so uh, there, were, uh, uh, there was a provision to be put forward. And, if, and again, if you study the history here a little bit, this is very early in the gay rights movement. Um, 1972, uh, not long really after, I think, after Stonewall. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, we're very early in that movement, but we could see that United Methodists were thinking about this issue uh, as early as 1972. And in fact, the proposal that came from the commission uh, was to have a very sort of inclusive social principle that would recognize um, the sacred worth of all persons. And in fact, our Book of Discipline today recognizes the sacred worth of all persons, period, hard stop. Mm -hmm. Um, but interestingly, and by the way, uh, if you want to know more about this, it's not hard to find more information. Uh, just Google History of the United Methodist Incompatibility Clause, and you will get um, many, many pages, different kinds of pages of uh, stuff, things, including um, really well researched with primary resources uh, uh, information about this topic. So in any case, our social principles are passed by our general conference. It's our worldwide legislative body. It's the only body in the United Methodist Church that's authorized to sort of say, here's what United Methodists believe on any of these topics. And so this proposal, this, the whole package came before the 1972 general conference. And that conference looked at all these different things and had discussions on these things as that general conference is wont to do. And uh, interestingly, from the floor of that general conference, there was a person who, a delegate, who um, just was concerned about uh, being maybe too open as far as 
LGBTQ issues, what we call LGBTQ issues now, at that time. And again, if you if you do some research, you can find his statements. He's been interviewed and and talked about sort of his experience sitting on the floor of General Conference, and and rising to make a motion to amend on the floor of our General Conference to include what we would call, what I call now, and others call the incompatibility clause, mm -hmm. a part of our social principles that says that, um, a, that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, uh, which is a part of our um, book of discipline today. And there was discussion about that motion on the floor of General Conference. It didn't go through the committee. It didn't go through the commission. It came right from the floor of General Conference, and it passed. And so in 1972, we had this thing called the incompatibility clause in our social principles. Which in Christian circles in that era would have almost been expected. Um, like you said, it's important. We talk about scripture, reading scripture in the context of what, where, when it was written and the people that it was trying to, inter to interact with. And it's the same thing with our social principles, right? I mean, there's a reason that we have a commission now in the United Methodist Church that is working on, actually they have completed and that work I believe will come up for ratification in 2024 uh, at the general conference of a revision of the, of the social principles. It, it's a constant work in progress. I mean, it, I tell people, and I've told people in my church, I mean, the social principles aren't the Bible. Um, they're, they're written by people at particular times in our history and given understandings that we, that we have. Uh, so that was passed in 1972. It was controversial immediately. Mm -hmm. And we certainly saw the development, and I say we in a very royal sense. It's, this is <laughs> right. before my time uh, with the United Methodist Church. But uh, what we see... Um, development of sort of caucus groups. And so there were caucus groups who formed to try to change that incompatibility clause to be a more inclusive church. And there have been caucus groups that developed um, to uh, maintain a, a more traditional orthodox um, sort of point of view on that issue and others. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these caucus groups have developed over time. And really, in every general conference since 1972, there have been suggestions to, in some way, amend or um, limit the incompatibility clause in some way, and they failed every time. And in fact, uh, we see the more concrete examples of how that incompatibility clause plays out in our church life, um, because it was given sort of concrete form in two main ways. Uh, one, that uh, pastors are prohibited from uh, same-sex marriages from 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 officiating from officiating yeah. thank you yeah. uh, same-sex marriages and we can't have same-sex marriages in a United Methodist Church that's a part of our discipline now and also that uh, our book of discipline uh, prohibits the ordination of self-avowed practicing homosexuals and so in those two concrete ways uh, those have been added to the book of discipline since 1972 and give a concrete, um, application of the in incompatibility clause. And so we see that as being a, a real focus of a lot of the conflict since 1972, and, and particularly increasing, I, I think, in the last 20 years, mm -hmm. as we've seen um, the LGBTQ movement really change um, and develop in our nation. Yeah, I was going to say that one of the, maybe the flashpoints of this is that Ideas and, and, and uh, beliefs have sw have switched a little bit in the United States anyway. Far more people today believe uh, 
polls tell us believe that uh, same gender marriages are accepted compared to like when I was in high school and college. Um, that's a very different, it's a different dynamic. It's just rational, right, that the folks who are delegates from the United States in the General Conference probably reflect the United States a little bit more. And so they're going to be more supportive of that than the folks who were delegates in 1972. Absolutely. And, and certainly uh, we know, and, and I've worked with the delegation since 2012, I mean, we know that if, if we were just voting from the United States, uh, it, it is extremely likely, almost certain, that there would have been changes in the incompatibility clause. Um, but we're not just the United States. The United Methodist right. Church is a worldwide church. And we have significant numbers of delegates from Africa and from the Philippines. And in some of those places, uh, that sort of traditional or orthodox view is extremely prevalent. And so when you sort of combine that with the divisiveness that we have in the United States, it has led to this place where, again, every four years there have been proposals for changes, um, but none of them have ever passed. And I, the first time I went to General Conference was as an alternate in Tampa in 2012. And you know, I remember uh, seeing protests on the floor of General Conference and protests outside the General Conference and sort of the angst as people were working to try to find a, a new way forward in some way. I remember when Adam Hamilton got up and I think made a motion at that conference to uh, uh, just be able to say, can we agree that we don't agree? And we couldn't agree on that in 2012. Um, and so it laid the, it sort of laid the, uh, groundwork for a lot of the conflict that we're having. Uh, I think my traditional friends, and I want to be clear, I mean, would say this, this is not the only issue. It's not, right. it's not their focus. They're really focused on uh, concerns about uh, culture driving the church. That, that, mm -hmm. that is not the, the view that they take. That, and, and one which, with which I agree, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things in our culture that I think our church should stand against. But they, there are disagreements on other issues, too, and other social principles, whether it be reproductive choice, gun rights. Um. As, as we're doing this interview today, it is, it is primary day in Kansas, and the big ballot issue is over a constitutional amendment related to abortion. Um, obviously, people don't agree on that. Uh, Adam Hamilton and I, in the episode that we've already aired, talked a little bit about how the church has never agreed on everything. Uh, going all the way back to look who Jesus had as part of the Twelve, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector, <laughs> uh, and the interesting discussions they must have had as they were walking from place to place. So um, it is important to realize that this is not the only thing we disagree on. For whatever reason, it has been the focal point uh, for a long, long time. It has become a presenting issue um, in what traditionalists would say is but a, a larger issue about how we uh, interpret the Bible. Mm -hmm. And and we we really see that uh, developing uh, as a as a disagreeing as a point between traditionalists and centrists and progressives I think um, and claims about uh, whether or not one side or the other is faithfully interpreting scripture, um, which we all think is important. So 2016, um, we have what looks like is going to be an instant split of the church. Um, what were your thoughts? Uh, think back to 2016 in Portland, Oregon. Uh, what was going through your head as all that was developing in front of you? Yeah, and again, I was an alternate in, in Portland and watching in the stands, and there really was uh, a point where it felt like 
uh, a vote had been taken to try to find some middle ground and it, fa it failed, it just failed. And it, it really did feel like in the room at the time, like, I, I guess we're done. Uh, I don't know where else to go from here. And so uh, for me, I mean, there's, there was some despair and sort of uh, wondering how, how can we move forward? And so I think uh, other, other speakers you've talked to have talked more about the, the process in Portland itself. Mm -hmm. Um, but then when, when this idea came forward of, well, let's, let's keep working on this, let's have another commission and come back in a few years to talk about this topic. Um, what was your feeling when you got on the plane in Portland to come home? To come home? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was glad we didn't split. So there was some relief there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was difficult to see a positive way forward for our denomination. Let's backtrack just a bit, but not too far, to 2012. Here's David Livingston. So in 2012, not a lot happened, but what was significant is that the uh, group that was opposed to where we are right now in our Book of Discipline um, had, as they have before, a series of protests. But in 2012, the protests were much more pronounced than before. And I think that was the point, not because of general conference action, but because of the resistance outside of the actual conference floor itself, that it really became clear momentum was, um, was shifting in terms of people were no longer willing to just abide by where we were. And tell us a little, what is, when you say protest, what does that mean? Because some people have different ideas about what that entails. But we're talking about on the floor of the general conference, which is a little different than somebody that's protesting outside. That's right. So for years and years, there had been you know signs, banners, um, chants coming from um, the conference center, but outside of general conference floor or in the stands even. But in the case of 2012, the protests happened actually on the floor of General Conference so that they had to shut down General Conference. And uh, there was even um, an initial ruling from the bishop who was presiding at the time that the next, the next um, segment of conference, the next session, would be uh, closed to the public so that only the delegates could even be inside the room. And uh, our bishop at the time, Bishop Jones, actually prevented that from happening. Uh, but that's how significant the protests were. It was a whole nother layer, level. So kind of an escalated uh, – uh, folks who felt disenfranchised decided to take back maybe a little bit of uh, – not really a little bit of control, but to make their voice be heard. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And I would say they were trying to exert control. Um, despite what the General Conference says, we will not abide by this. Mm -hmm. So that gets us to 2016 in Portland, which was my first general conference. A great time to have your first general conference. <laughs> uh, talk, walk us through what happened in 2016, because you and the rest of the Great Plains delegation had a significant impact on what happened in 2016. Yeah, so to start with, it seemed like it would be no different than any other um, general conference. And we knew the votes were going to be similar to what they had previously been. Um, but um, there actually came a moment at that general conference where it really felt like the entire denomination was just about to, to collapse in on itself. Like it felt like the schism was about to happen just simply on one given day. Um, in the lead up to that, we knew that uh, there was going to be, you know, several petitions that dealt with uh, the question of human sexuality. 
Um, between sections, at one point, there was a, a theologically diverse group who came together and a handful of leaders, and um, they had discussion about actually making a, a new petition right there on the spot that would call for the division of the United Methodist Church. Um, simple way to say it, some of what we're experiencing now, the, lo- the logistics would be different, but they were calling for that six years ago now. And they had an agreement, and there was a, a bishop who was part of that group that shared on the conference uh, floor that that conversation had happened and that the motion was going to come. And um, that was the start of that two-day process when um, it really, I think, felt to everybody who was a delegate that um, it was it was all about to come crashing down around us. So ultimately what happened was that the bishops created a task force, which then became known as the Way Forward Commission. And uh, that, that commission was going to meet then and talk about how, um, how we might find a way to move forward as a denomination or not. And uh, then ultimately they formed the uh, 2019 special session uh, of General Conference to happen. Um, the protests that had happened in 2012, they were uglier at 2016, more pronounced at 2016. And uh, I think the moment that people who were there will probably remember most was that there was an accusation that the presiding bishop at the time was giving hand signals to delegates for how a vote should happen. Um, that was, by all indications, not an accurate assessment of what the bishop was doing. And um, the the conference came to a complete stop with a recess um, where there was mass confusion and bishops came down to be with their delegates. Um, and that was, a, that was the second Wednesday of general conference. I mean, I remember the day and um, it really felt like it was all crashing down. Um, it was right after that, that we had the motion, which originally came from Mark Holland, to form that uh, special commission. And um, I should say Mark Holland was a member of our delegation. That's um, right. And uh, yeah, he stepped forward. And I remember when he, I remember being in the press room, and all we could see was the microphone. <laughs> we could see the microphone, and we could see the the dais. And uh, to see him walk to the microphone, I remember leaning forward in my chair, going, "Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the chaos. He made a motion, which ultimately uh, passed, and then um, Adam Hamilton, that was for the conversation to happen with the bishops, then Adam Hamilton from our conference made a motion uh, that ultimately would have formed the the commission on the way forward. His motion actually failed, and then we had the big breakdown, and then George Howard, who is from West Ohio, I believe, uh, made a subsequent motion that essentially was the same as Adams, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a reconsideration, if I remember. It more or less, I mean, it, effectively, did, it was. didn't use that language, but when you look at what actually was in the motion, it was kind of the same, right? And and that created a whole nother uh, level of discontent because there was question from the traditionalist side about whether that motion should have even been considered, and the technical reasons for that have to do with that, mm-hmm. you know, reconsideration versus other ways that a, a motion can come. Um, so the other significant thing that happened in 2016 is that with the formation or with the decision to form something like the way forward commission, um, there was a decision not to address any other 
petitions or any petitions, period, actually, that had to do with human sexuality at 2016 so that we could deal with all of those at one time at the 2019 uh, Special General Conference. What were your thoughts when you left Portland as far as where things stood and what the future might hold? I mean, I would say hope, really, because, you know, nothing had changed. And I, I'm really clear uh, about more what my stance is. I think we do need to make some changes, uh, significant changes, and be a more inclusive um, denomination. And 2016, you know, nothing officially changed. And at the same time, it felt like there was some cohesion um, around the possibilities for the future. I think um, it felt like... Um, uh, maybe it felt like the beginning of the end of this stuff that we're going through. I did not anticipate 2019 happening the way that it did and being as ugly as it was. And I mean, I think if anybody had anticipated how ugly that was, nobody would have shown up. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's shift gears to 2019. Uh, so leading up to 2019, the Great Plains Conference, I, I know our bishop went around because uh, I was there with all <laughs> with him at all 18 visits. We did all 17 districts, two in the Great West because of the size of the geographical size of that district. And it was more or less a listening session and a chance for the bishop to lay out here are what these three plans are. There was the One Church Plan, um, and then there was something called the um, Connectional Conferences Plan, which was very complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was what became known as the Traditional Plan. I think there are a lot of people who were surprised. When we were in St. Louis, there was a vote, for those of you not familiar with it, there was a vote to determine the priorities. And the Traditional Plan came out first in that list, which yeah. I think... There was just like, I just remember there being a gasp in the room when it was shown. Uh, what were your thoughts sitting on the floor of the 2019 General Conference as that process was playing out? Yeah, and I was really involved with uh, the leadership of the group who was working on the One Church plan. And, and um, in fact, I mean, this is not a, I don't think, a secret to anybody. There's um, a pol political process. And so we were working on seeing who we thought would be voting which way in a vote counting even mm -hmm. process. And um, we thought that by a small margin, a very small margin, that the One Church Plan um, had a good chance of passing. And so that first part of the 2019 where we set the priorities, I mean, it was clear to everybody that setting the priorities um, was not the final vote. It was the first in a series of votes, but it was a... Um, you know, it was a vote that would set the stage for what was next, kind of a proxy vote mm -hmm. to see what was going to be most likely to pass. And, you know, still it was not by a very large margin, but um, the traditional plan was that number one pick that people wanted to, to talk about first. And um, what I said to somebody recently is that it, it was not a shock that the one church plan did not pass. It was a shock that the traditional plan passed. And so for that to come out on top, I mean, we, we, had, we had planned on, um, for lack of a better term, we'd planned on, on being on offense and instead we were on defense. And so we're talking about, well, if that's the preference of the group as a whole, then we need to figure out how to cause as little damage um, for people who are LGBTQ as, as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, not just for the general conference itself, but for what happens after general conference 2019 too. Because right, you got to live with whatever happens. <laughs> got to live one way or another with whatever it is that happens. Absolutely. Uh, so we we leave St. Louis. 
totally different feel than when we left 2016 uh, in Portland. What was your What was your feeling yeah. when you left St. Louis? The one thing that every delegate who was at the 2019 General Conference in St. Louis would agree to, the only thing that we would all agree to, is it was a complete mess and disaster. Everybody left sad, um, if not devastated. Um, before the 2019 conference happened, I had a, a retired pastor who said to me, I know you've been working really hard on this. Um, are you like overly invested in this? You know, you may not, ultimately your position may not prevail. What then? And what I said to him was, yeah, that's definitely possible. And I would be devastated if that happened. But I would be more devastated if I didn't do everything that I could. Mm -hmm. And it still went down. And so that's where we were. I mean, I was devastated. But at least we worked really, really hard on it as best as we could. But it was it was very um, emotionally draining. I remember um, after a session one night calling home and just crying on the phone uh, with Tracy, my wife, um, because of how things had happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were... I don't know if there's, there's anyone at all who left St. Louis feeling good about anything. No, everybody felt uh, e Even those who won, lost. Right. Um, and I think maybe that, perhaps that helped actually stem the tide a little bit. Uh, it was almost like the pendulum swung too far. Well, that's uh, exactly right, I think, Todd. And Because, you know, we had people who were watching General Conference online who I doubt had ever watched anything online from a general conference or anything United Methodist before. And I, mean, I have um, lay members of, of churches, both that I'd served and, and just that I hadn't served, that I just, people that I knew, who afterwards said, I just can't believe what happened. And I think that's part of why we were so surprised the traditional plan passed, because, I mean, still today, obviously, we have churches and we have lay people who are going to be, or are, or have left the denomination. Um, but that's a, uh, a small minority of people who are United Methodist. And some of us talked about it being a mean-spirited plan, and, and I, I believe that it is mean-spirited. I mean, it, when you read the details of what that traditional plan had, um, it was like an inquisition. I mean, it was like a witch hunt at, at some points um, with uh, bishops and pastors and churches signing statements about what they would and wouldn't allow and enforce and even um, speak to um, publicly. And so um, we just never thought that something like something like that could actually be passed. So um, the aftermath of 2019, I was on vacation. We were in, in uh, Florida in, uh, in June, and other annual conferences were meeting um, ours, I think, had not quite happened yet, but some conferences were meeting, and I started to get texts. I remember we were in Ride for a Line at, uh, at Universal Orlando, and um, I got a message from somebody from a, a nearby conference who said such and such conference. They elected a, a delegation for the 2020 General Conference that is 100% progressive, and they elected it on the first ballot. Mm -hmm. And I replied back, no. You're, you misunderstand what happened. I, I can't tell you what happened. I'm not there, but I know that that didn't There's no happen. way that happened. <laughs> and they said, no, really. And then I got more confirmations, and there were so many messages like that. So 
of delegates in the United States identified with the progressive or centrist um, perspective compared to 25% for the traditionalists across the country. Um, more than 66% of delegates in every jurisdiction. So even in the southeastern jurisdiction and the south central jurisdiction, which are the more conservative jurisdictions, mm -hmm. those conferences also overwhelmingly said this is not the direction that we want to go. Now, And our own annual conference passed a resolution uh, basically saying that we don't agree with the yes. traditionalist plan. Yes, and we were one of, of many conferences that passed something like that. And, you know, again, and I think this is important. I always talk about progressives and centrists because there's a, a vast swath of people who are someplace in the middle there who, um, you know, maybe 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 not sure. There's a lot of people for, for whom maybe um, civil marriage, same-sex marriage is, um, is fine. I'm not sure. What if I had a pastor? myself that was gay, I'm not so sure. Um, differences between uh, somebody who's gay, for example, and somebody who identifies as transgender. So there's a whole lot of, of in-between that people are unsure. And in the United Methodist Church moving forward, there's room for people who have that wide variety of opinions. Um, what we're not going to be as a church that has that uh, discrimination that we find with like the traditional plan where there's just outright bans, that's not going to happen. When I mean, you're talking about the, the wide swath, so Adam Hamilton and I talked, and one of the things we discussed for a little bit was the idea that, frankly, this is a topic that for a lot of churches never comes up. Mm -hmm. It's just not a thing yeah. uh, for them. They're not, they're not concerned about it. They're more concerned about what's going on with their food pantry or some ministry that they've got going on. Uh, human sexuality, they recognize as an issue within the denomination, but it's not something that directly impacts them. And so they're very—they're not focused, laser focused on this. Like some people have made this their entire. <laughs> yeah. They're—they're. Yeah. They're, it's the litmus test for them on everything. Yes, that's absolutely true on on both sides of that. Too, right. right. Yeah. It's not just—it's not just—it's not just traditionalists, but there's yeah. there's some on the progressive side that I've had that same. At least when I've talked with them, I've come to the conclusion that wow, they are really just focused on this one thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and that can be kind of frustrating, I think, for. For a lot of other folks who who see this as one piece, but not the conglomeration of what we're supposed to be doing uh, as a denomination. Yeah, and so I think our our hope would be, or my hope would be, that we can move to a place um, fairly quickly now as a denomination where we can um, affirm in our conferences that. Um, we don't need to have barriers against ordination. We don't need to have barriers against weddings. And then we can focus on other things that matter as well. So, you know, COVID, one of the things that COVID should have taught us is that there are massive issues that we need to talk about as a country and that we need to work on as a country and as a, as a globe with a, a global denomination. Um, uh, we have floods in St. Louis right now. We have heat waves all over the country. Climate change is a real thing, and the church can have something to say about that too. Mm -hmm. But if we're focused only on one piece, so that we can't do that. So we need to be able to move. I don't want to say move past this because um, you know it's not like it's not like an, this is an issue that's going to go away. We're talking about real life human beings, right? And um, and and the real life human beings we're talking about are not going to go away. So it's not like some issue that's going to have its moment and then pass on. We're going to have to, all of us, continue to talk with and not to or about um, people who um, are a part of our families and churches and, and always will be. 
So if you're keeping track, we've gone through the 2016 General Conference with the formation of the Commission on a Way Forward, and we endured a horribly contentious and, frankly, sad 2019 special session of General Conference. As the calendar turned to 2020, there was renewed optimism with what became known as the Protocol. Specifically, the Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace through Separation. Here's Randall Hodgkinson to explain further. So I was actually elected to be a delegate in 2020, and so it's a, that election takes place in 2019, and we're working as a delegation then. And, and there are lots of different proposals coming forward. There were the Indianapolis plan, and there, there were different plans coming forward from different people. I think you're right, recognizing that we, we really need to try to find something probably involving some sort of separation. Um, but to, is there a way that we could do that where we can get an agreement on even separating? Uh, which, I mean, requires still the approval of a general conference. And, uh, you know, that, well, can you find that, that place in the middle where people can say, yeah, I'm giving up some and you're giving up some, and yes, we can agree on this at this point. We can point. at least live with this. We can live with this and, and move forward. Uh, so there were lots of different proposals that were coming forward. And then I think late in 2019, if I'm remembering right, sort of there was this um, work it was started by Bishop Yambasu from Sierra Leone mm -hmm. and involved a fairly small group of uh, different leaders from across the denomination, including Junius Dotson from our own conference. He's referencing the late Reverend Junius Dotson, who had served as lead pastor at St. Mark United Methodist Church in Wichita, our conference's largest traditionally black church. At the time of his death from cancer, Junius was the general secretary for discipleship ministries of the United Methodist Church. And, and so there were key leaders from all the sort of big caucus groups that are the, the, are the ones that are likely to be. On, on many sides. On uh, every side. Uh, the the Wesleyan Covenant Association had someone on that group and, and multiple people on the conservative side. This was not just a centrist and traditionalist uh, the, yeah. or centralist and progressive group. This was a large group of people from. I remember seeing the picture of the group the first time and I'm thinking, when was the last time that group of people had a photo taken together? It was just yeah. an interesting group. And, and sat down and talked together, um, particularly given sort of the levels of distrust that I would say that we have, at the, especially some of those high levels. Um, so Bishop Yambasu was able to get this group together and was able to get a, uh, a mediator, an attorney named Feinberg, I think, from Chicago, mm -hmm. Uh, who had done a lot of these really high-level mediations where you have really high emotional um, divisiveness. Some involving 9-11, if I remember correctly. 9-11 settlements, right, where, where you bring people in a room who are going to have a hard time sometimes even sitting together. Uh, and so uh, Mr. Feinberg and his associates, Mr. Feinberg has nothing to do with the United Methodist Church. He's Jewish. Um, but uh, he and his associates volunteered their time because he thought as worthwhile to see if they could help this this denomination in the United States, and so they sat down. and I wasn't party to any of that negotiation, obviously, um, but at the end of that process, there came this thing called the protocol, which you've named, and it was a plan which uh, was to be brought forward to the general conference in 2020, which would provide for some sort of equitable separation, where there would be a new um, traditionalist denomination that would form, at least one, uh, maybe some progressive new denominations who are unhappy with, also unhappy with the, where the United Methodist Church is today or would be even in the near future. And so it would provide mechanisms then 
for different annual conferences and churches and clergy to sort of separate out into some newly created maybe denominations. It's important to note that the protocol was an idea. Uh, It had to be written into legislation. And it was in process, or maybe it was even completed before 2020. But then, of course, we all know what happened in March of 2020. (laughs) The world shuts down because of the pandemic. And I can tell, you know, we were interviewing um, Episcopal candidates uh, in the spring, early uh, 2020, and having a lot of discussions among the delegation about uh, the protocol. And our delegation voted to support the protocol. And and our delegation has um, diametrically opposing viewpoints within our delegation, just like the Great Plains Conference. Sure. And uh, But as a delegation, we voted and said, look, we feel like this is our best chance for a way forward. Um, it provided some financial support for the new denominations. It provided financial support for rec- uh, racial reconciliation. Uh, and it provided these mechanisms for even whole annual conferences to leave to a new denomination. And, and probably and, one of the biggest sticking points that it alleviated was it allowed churches that wanted to leave to leave with their property. That's right. Uh, so it relaxed the trust the trust clause. Um, I know that was something a lot of people were looking at. Yeah, because, and it, and it um, facilitated uh, honoring our commitments to clergy through the pension programs because a new denomination could participate in a new, in, a, in, a, in our existing pension program. Mm-hmm. So it, it just facilitated this in a way that uh, and so the leaders of these opposing factions, in some case, opposing caucus groups, in some case, signed on. And everybody said, we're going to work towards this. We're going to work towards this. And I, just speaking for myself, um, I felt like maybe this has some momentum, that, that people want something to happen, and maybe this can happen in Minneapolis. It felt to me like even though we were talking about separation, that in a lot of ways it built a lot of bridges. <laughs> Uh, which is kind of an odd juxtaposition, but I, I think that's that's the way I was looking at it. And then, of course, when the world shuts down uh, because of the pandemic, uh, we just we have this long pause. We're still in the pause. Uh, the general conference didn't happen in 2020. It was postponed to 2021. Didn't happen in 2021. It was postponed again. And the feeling was that instead of trying to ram it through in 2023 and then have another one the next year, we would just wait until 2024. Um, what are your thoughts on that as far as like the, the delay? Do you think that's been helpful at all to help people get used to what this may look like? Or has that been hurtful? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was certainly disappointed uh, when the decision was made to postpone. I understand I'm, I'm not on that general commission that has to try to figure out all those logistics. I can't imagine what job those people have to do. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and you know, not a job they were elected to do. Um, and so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of that. And yet, I was disappointed because I felt like even in 2022, the protocol was still something that could pass and could give us a way forward in a, in a way that didn't involve a lot of litigation, that didn't involve... Uh, that, that, that would have mitigated some of the, the angst. Um, but that decision was made, and so now we're where we're at. Um, it seems unlikely now, I, you know, the, the global Methodist church is moving forward. Uh, and so, you know, what the future lies with regard to how our denomination will split, I, you know, I can't predict. I don't think any, very many people can predict. But it seems unlikely at this point like that the protocol will be the way forward. Right. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens when we actually do get people together. And, and let's just be honest, what the dynamic is like in the room. 
we have churches disaffiliating, which means that if you know those delegates are no longer members of, if they choose to remove their membership with their church, then they're not delegates anymore. I'm not talking about the Great Plains here. I don't want to give any kind of uh, false information. I'm just talking about denomination-wide. There's a very real possibility that the tenor in the room is a little different in 2024 than what it was in 2016. So plans are underway for a general conference finally to be held in 2024, but we still have nearly two years until then. And it's that delay, at least in part, that spurred leaders of the conservative Wesleyan Covenant Association to form and launch the Global Methodist Church, a denomination that promises to keep a traditionalist view of scripture and teaching. Churches nationwide, although it does appear to be in larger numbers in the South, have chosen to disaffiliate. They, for a variety of reasons, don't feel that they can be part of the United Methodist Church going forward. With that in mind, here's another piece of my conversation with David Livingston. One of the things we were talking about is an annual conference. Obviously, we have churches that are disaffiliating. Uh, we have a special session coming up September 10th where we will have somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 churches uh, that will be uh, maybe a little bit north of that figure that will be looking to disaffiliate. Um, and as an annual conference, staff anyway, we've been very cognizant of we don't want those churches to fail. We want those churches to succeed in reaching new people for Christ. They may reach different people than those of us who stay behind in the United Methodist Church may reach. Yeah. Um, we all have one mission. We may do it differently. Um, what are your thoughts about that going forward? You know, as we as we look at the here's those of us who are going to stay in the United Methodist Church. There's some that are going to leave, but how can we still continue to have relationship with each other? I guess while all this is going on, even with all the acrimony that's happened so far. I think in that regard, Todd, the Great Plains Conference has been really um, a great example for the rest of the denomination. And I want to back up for a second because that paragraph 2553, which is being used now for disaffiliations, that is one of the things that passed at the 2019 um, General Conference. And there's some, in my opinion, misperceptions about that because um, the legislation at General Conference gets confusing at times and convoluted at times. Our processes are, are not processes that will probably uh, make sense to somebody who's not been there before. Um, but um, the, the petition that ended up being the new paragraph 2553, it was originally a petition that came from somebody who would identify as a centrist, but it became uh, a vehicle for a traditionalist uh, plan for disaffiliation. So the language on that includes two years of apportionment payments, the, um, the much talked about uh, unfunded liability for pensions. Mm -hmm. And then there's a piece in there that says that basically says the conference can add other pieces if it wants to. And I'm really grateful that our conference is not adding other pieces to it. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that's important for us, if we're going to work together, is that we need to be as um, as amicable and as gracious right now as we can be. And at a national and a uh, general level, um, we are not amicable. There is, if it's possible to have negative trust, we have negative trust. <laughs> um, the possibility that had been um, run up the flagpole about possibly having an online general conference. You know, we've done an online annual conference, mm -hmm. and that's worked. Because within our annual conference, generally speaking, we trust each other. We may not agree on everything, and that's okay. We can still trust each other. At the general church level, that's just not true. There is zero trust. And so um, 
I think the way that trust forms partially is because of relationships. And so the relationships that we have within our annual conference, fortunately, are strong enough that people with very different theological perspectives um, can still say to each other, I disagree with you, but I, I also trust that you have still my best interests at heart. And um, so I, I think um, it'll be important for us to stay in a relationship with each other on an individual level, pastors with other pastors, staff with other staff, lay people with other lay people, um, so that we can continue to work together in the places where we can work together. Yeah, tornado goes through a town. It doesn't care if it could go down this middle of a street between a a GMC and a UMC church, <laughs> you better be able to work together to help in that situation. Yeah, and and the same right. if there's a, something that happens that relates that, that results in a larger percentage of poverty than was in that neighborhood before, you've got to be able to do some stuff together. <laughs> yeah, you know, again, like with COVID as an example, mm-hmm. um, COVID didn't stop at one church's door and go into a different church's door instead. That's a good example, yeah. So how do we deal with those very pressing issues that every community is going to face, you know? A tornado comes through town, everybody's affected by that. And uh, we continue to be siblings in Christ, um, regardless of what church, uh, what the name is on the church that we go to on a Sunday. So I asked you how you felt after 2016 and after 2019. How do you feel about things today uh, going forward with the United Methodist Church? So I am um, in the short term, I'm cautiously optimistic. And in the long term, I'm incredibly optimistic. Um, in the short term, I'm, opt- I'm cautiously optimistic because there is the possibility in 2024 for things to go really well. Um, I mean, I, I think what's crystal clear after 2019, if it was not clear before, is that really, truly, we have irreconcilable differences. Um, we cannot stay together as a denomination. The split does have to happen. And it makes me really sad, um, but it's true. And so if that split happens between now and 2024, then the 2024 General Conference can, um, can be a fruitful conference that can help direct us as a denomination into the future. And so I'm not 100% sure that's what's going to happen, but I'm optimistic that that's going to happen. <laughs> Um, so it's and, kind of a possibility of hitting the reset button in a way. Yeah, and, and that's and what ultimately has me excited for the long term because, you know, um, our theology involves, in my opinion, very much of a both and. I'm excited mm-hmm. about being able to be a part of a church that believes that it's good for people to know Christ and that evangelistic impulse that started Methodism is real. And I'm excited about that. And we'll have a better chance to be able to do that um, once once we're able to have some more um, unification in terms of our um, approach to the future. Um, and we can do that without abandoning the, the social gospel. I mean, there's an evangelistic gospel and a social gospel that are both important. So... Um, we can get back to, or not get back. In some cases, it'll be getting back to it. And in other cases, it's going to be just renewing that focus of being able to make a difference in the world right around us. So an eternal difference and a temporal difference, those both can happen. And I think we're going to be in a much better position for that um, in the years moving forward after we get past 2024. So it's pretty unlikely that the protocol will pass at this point. 
A large contributing factor is what it was meant to accomplish, a separation, is being fulfilled through the disaffiliation process. It may take a while for the future to come into focus for us all. With a final word, here's Randall Hodgkinson. And we're all waiting, you know, uh, the leadership, denominational leadership, we're all waiting to see sort of how things sort of start self-sorting and what that means for the future. And I'm thankful and proud of our, of our conference leadership, who I think have really worked hard to make sure that, you know, people who have discerned with regard to their church that being in the United Methodist Church isn't right for them anymore, that we want to facilitate it, be in ministry and, and right. work with people, not against people. against people. I think everyone in this debate looks forward to that aspect of ministry once we move past this, well, impasse. I hope you feel like you've learned something from this historical look at how the United Methodist Church got to where it is today regarding human sexuality. So far in these episodes, we've looked at how we got there and what the current state of the church is now. We'll probably be taking about a one-week break to allow for some more interviews. Turns out folks are just really busy right now. So we'll be back with a look at how the Great Plains Conference has tried to work with churches who wish to disaffiliate and pastors who want to leave the denomination. I'll be joined by our conference trustees president, Reverend Stephanie Alshweed, and our conference treasurer, Scott Brewer. And I hope to be joined as well by Reverend Rick Just, a Wichita pastor and former district superintendent who's now a leader regionally in the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I hope you'll join me next time. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps others find us. And if you're so inclined, please share the link to this podcast on your social media channels. Our music and sound effects come via subscriptions to Universal Production Music and to Storyblocks. You can find archived episodes on the conference website at www.greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts or on my website, toddseifert.com. Please email me with any questions or comments to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.